A Radical Look at Scottish History with Stuart McHardy. Part 9. Macbeth and the Canmores. I've mentioned already how traditional stories can sometimes give us different takes on the past. But these are not the only kind of stories that can affect how we see our history. In many local histories of Scotland from the 19th century onwards, the authors very often start out by giving a general history of our nation. Time after time this has meant that in dealing with the 11th century, the figure of Macbeth was presented as he was portrayed by William Shakespeare. Now this famous dramatic work bears little, if any, relationship to what actually happened at the time, but the idea of the murderous king was well entrenched because of the role Shakespeare has long played in the canon of English literature. It would be awfully mean to mention that there are no Shakespeare suppers around the world, so maybe I shouldn't. Anyway, Shakespeare's story came from a set of chronicles, generally attributed to Holinshed, an English historian. But there is no evidence that Macbeth murdered Duncan when he was a guest in his home, an action that would have transgressed all notions of hospitality and honour at the time. And one early Scottish historian, Andrew of Winton, actually tells us that Macbeth's wife, Gruach, was previously married to Duncan. Some researchers suggested that many of the names generally accepted as fathers of Pictish kings are in fact female names. And given that the Pictish kings were not succeeded by their sons, one idea put forward is that the Pictish kings, several of whom we can be pretty sure were from outside Pictish territory, became king by marrying the queen. The idea of a female bloodline of sovereignty is not as rare as it is generally thought, but it is not something that would ever find favour in the eyes of the Christian priests, on whom we rely for so much of our early history. There is also some evidence that Macbeth himself had some claim to the throne, and in matters decided by the sword, legitimacy usually comes after the fact. Yet another reason for taking a critical approach to all history. Personally, I like the idea inherent in the 1320 Declaration, kings only have legitimacy if given it by the people. Now Macbeth is said to have ruled mainly peacefully for 17 years, apart from having to fend off, as usual, an invasion from England in 1054. The fact that he was said to have been buried in Iona, along with most other early Scottish kings, suggests that at least by the end of his reign, he was considered the legitimate ruler. Now, during Macbeth's reign, Malcolm, Duncan's son, took refuge first of Scotland. And though most historians have accepted that he was at the English court of Edward the Confessor, there have been suggestions he actually spent this time at the court of Earl Thorfinn of Orkney. It is generally believed that Malcolm or his forces defeated and killed Macbeth in 1057, and a year later defeated and killed Macbeth's stepson Lulach, who had succeeded to the throne. This left the way clear for Malcolm to become king. Like much of our early history, the picture is open to interpretation, and it is to be hoped that once Scotland is re-established as an independent nation, we can begin to look beyond the Anglo-centric leanings of the past and develop a better understanding of just how we have come to be who we are. What is notable is that Malcolm's first wife was Ingeborg, widow of Earl Thorfinn, and their son Duncan later briefly held the throne. This would have been a strategically important marriage alliance, given the extent of Norse power 
along the borders of Scotland, as it then was. Now, when Malcolm died on a raid into England in 1093, he had had several more sons by his second wife, Margaret. None of his sons, however, succeeded him directly. He was followed onto the throne by his brother Donald, Donald Bain, but he was almost immediately challenged and beaten in battle by his nephew Duncan. After a very short reign, Duncan was killed, and Donald was, briefly, back on the throne. Tradition and history have him retiring to a monastery after being replaced by another of his nephews, Edgar, another of Malcolm and Margaret's sons. Such infighting amongst related claimants to the throne is not uniquely Scottish. It is the way of all of those aspiring to royalty. Now, Edgar lasted for ten years, after which he was succeeded by his brother Alexander, who, after a further seventeen years, was followed by the last of Malcolm's sons to ascend the throne, David I. It is strikingly obvious that there is no primogeniture here. Brother is succeeding brother in a fashion akin to clan or tribal practice, where the successor was, wherever possible, the next in direct line of descent from the original, even if mythical, clan founder. According to this process, the chief's brother was clearly closer to the founder than the chief's son. Now, Malcolm's second wife, Margaret, stands out in Scotland's history mainly for her supposed dedication to the Christian church, though I've always found the subtext of her having brought a new level of civilization to the northern barbarians objectionable. Historians have made much of the supposed feudal processes brought in by Malcolm's son David I, and in terms of feudal charters he certainly handed out lots of them. Whether much of the country was actually feudalised is doubtful indeed. How do you replace the head of a tribal structure related to all of his kin group with a stranger? The answer is, you didn't. Unless you completely subjugate the entire tribe and impose a new form of rule, and for all the vaunted Norman origins of so many Scottish clans, we have no records of such battles anywhere, any time. Now David was undoubtedly a centraliser and saw the feudal processes he had observed in England as useful indeed. But outside a few areas of the central belt, the evidence for feudal structure is slim indeed. Most of the so-called motts, where the incoming Normans supposedly built their castles when investigated, proved to be much older and were often used for purposes other than defence. Even the ones that were used defensively have been shown not to be classic Norman-type structures at all even if many are still referred to in both maps and archaeological record as motts. The story of the Normanisation of Scotland has been built on shifting sands indeed. Many commentators have commented on the form of surnames of most of the signatories of the Declaration of Arbroath. There we find Dementith, De Graham, De Lennox, and many other similar names. But it's kind of obvious that after the De, an undoubtedly French term, Almost every surname is a Scottish place name. The Normanised and Latinate charter writing conventions introduced by David I created formalised literary conventions and simply became how things were done. That said, there is one clear Norman name in there, the Umfraville, but it's the only one I can see. In Scotland's future history, I've looked in more detail at the supposed Norman families of Scotland. And while there is no doubt that the Lairdies have long wanted to have Norman forefathers like the English Aristos they have so slavishly copied, as the Ayrshire laddie said, facts are chills that winnie ding. And though David was succeeded by his son, 
in true feudal primogeniture style, it is worth remembering that he had been preceded on the throne by his brothers, and before them his uncle succeeded his brother, Malcolm. Now after David, all this changed, but the clan system survived throughout much of Scotland for many centuries yet. Now David has been very well treated by historians and was referred to as a sere sanct for the croon, attesting his loyalty to and his support for the Christian religion. Now, there has been a hidden agenda in Scottish history since the Union and even before to try and make our past seem as much like that of England as possible. And the idea that Scotland was full of Norman knights brought on by David is part of this. He himself, however, was well aware of the potential problems to the south and a suggestion has been made that as much praised creation of the famous abbeys of the borders was a subtle line of defence against encroachment from the south designed to give pause to any English king marching north. What we can make out of his character certainly suggests he was no fool. While it is beyond doubt that he did leave punitive expeditions to Galloway and to Murray, despite this, both areas seems to have subsequently reverted to the same tribal pattern as was dominant throughout most of the country. Next time, we'll look at David's successors and the ongoing problems with the